Hi, I'm Elise Dayeem, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Rose Eveleth of Class of 2022 National Fellow. Rose is a writer and producer who explores how humans tangle with science and technology. She's the creator of the podcast network Flash Forward Presents and host of Flash Forward, as well as Advice For and From the Future podcasts. Her new project, Tested, is an audio documentary series that explores the past, present, and future of sex testing in sports and asks big questions about the lines we draw and the lengths we'll go to enforce them. So Rose, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. So to start, can you tell me a little bit more about your fellowship project and what you're hoping to do with your project this year? Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Um, My project is about the past, present, and future of sex testing in athletics and sort of why it exists, how it's impacted people, and then grappling with questions of what should happen here um, and sort of making real the harms that have been done for over 100 years now um, with sex testing. So before I get into the project itself, I have quite a few questions there. I want to learn more about you. And from what I understand, you did initially study to become a marine biologist, which is really unique. And you are now working as a journalist, but really focused as an audio producer. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you made that pivot from wanting to become a marine biologist to now becoming a really um, successful podcast producer? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I always wanted to be a scientist. I was always really interested in understanding how the world works, which I think is sort of a parallel to journalism, even if I didn't know it at the time. Um, And I just was always really curious about why things were the way they were. I was like that very annoying child who was like, but why? Like, why is it like this? Like, how did this happen? How did we get here? Um, my parents are both scientists. And so I was like, all right, well, that's what I'll do. I'll I'll go into science. I was really into marine biology. Um, I made my dad get me scuba certified when I was 12 for my 12th birthday. So it was like me and a bunch of like large men getting certified together, um, in suburban New Jersey. Um, and, uh, I was very fortunate, uh, in my undergraduate to be able to do a bunch of lab work. I got a job at, um, Scripps Institute of Oceanography, sort of helping doing lab work, sort of seeing what the process is like for science. And it kind of became clear to me through that opportunity that the actual sort of career of science probably wasn't something that I was going to enjoy as much as I thought in the sense that you really have to pick certainly one field of science to go into, but often, you know, like one or two questions to try and answer and spend like much of your career trying to answer a handful of questions. And I had more than a handful of questions about how the world worked, um, even within marine biology, but I wound up applying to graduate schools in multiple different fields of science. I tried, I thought maybe I'll do entomology because I got really into orchid bees, um, which are these incredible bees. I was, you know, applying all these places and my very kind boss at the time was like, this is a bad sign. If you can't even pick the field of science in which you would like to go get your graduate degree. And he actually happened to know someone who had gone to the NYU journalism school program that is specifically about science journalism. And I had never, it had never occurred to me that that could be a career that one could write about science or sort of you know, professionally do that, like write for magazines about science stuff. Um, and once I learned that was in fact a career that was possible, it became very obvious that that's what I should probably do. Um, and so it is the perfect combination. I get to ask a lot of questions about how the world works and why we do the things we do and why decisions are made and, you know, the mechanisms of 
the world around us. Um, but I get to bounce around between topics and ideas much more so than you would be able to in science. So I did end up going to that NYU program. I was very fortunate to go there. And then from there was introduced to audio and radio. I was not a radio listener as a kid. Um, I did not grow up listening to NPR. We had other kinds of radio on at my house, um, like shock jock kind of Rush Limbaugh radio, which was not something I was sort of itching to do. Um, and so I was introduced to radio at NYU and worked a little bit on the WNYU sort of college radio station and sort of fell into it from there. And that's kind of how I wound up over here on the other side of things. So you mentioned earlier that your project will investigate the practice of gender verification testing and its aftermath for athletes around the world. So can you talk more about your gravitation towards the story, but also can you give us a brief history of these testing practices? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, it's really fascinating to look at places where um, we're really trying to make sense of the world and trying to put things into categories. And we want things to be in categories so badly, but that's not how the world works. Um, I am a person with autism and uh, that is very similar. Like people want there to be different types of autism and like there's a spectrum of high functioning, low functioning, which are terms no one really uses anymore. And so I wrote about that. And then I'm always looking for places like that where, you know, we really want to be able to sort people into things that make sense. And probably the ultimate version of that is gender and sex and men and women, right? That we have this idea that that's it. And I'm also a big sports fan. Um, I've always been a big sports fan. And so it was just a really perfect place where these topics and ideas kind of combined and collided. Sex verification, sex testing has been around for a lot longer than I think most people realize. The first women were allowed to compete in the Olympics in 1900. And in 1912, that was when people started worrying about, quote unquote, men pretending to be women as a thing that men might do. There's, uh, and from there, we end up with sex testing um, very, very early on. We've been doing this for almost a hundred years. Never, ever found a case of a man pretending to be a woman to compete at the Olympics. That has never happened. Um, and yet we persist for some reason, um, which is also really interesting to me. Um, places where, you know, the history of sex testing is often, is, is really a history of trying and trying and trying to put a square peg in a round hole and coming up with more and more complicated and advanced quote unquote methods to do so. So early on, it was a visual inspection, which was as dehumanizing as you might imagine. Then we went to things like uh, chromosomal tests, which are faulty because sex is actually not binary and many people have chromosomal anomalies. Um, now the focus is on testosterone and the supposed benefits that it might confer to someone. Um, and we're just consistently asking science to provide an answer to a question that is fundamentally not scientific, which is about fairness and about categories that are constructed, right? That don't exist in biology. So I, I'm always really interested and drawn to these kinds of really thorny questions that have a long history in which science is kind of being asked to do something that science sort of can't do because there's no scientific answer to this question. Yeah. I mean, building off that, it, it also seems as though there is a racial element to the testing in addition to like you said, a gender element where men aren't tested in the same way. Um, I know Human Rights Watch produced a report last year that specifically looked at the racial implications of the testing. So if you're comfortable or have an understanding of that, can you just talk a little bit more about the racial implications there too and who tends to be mostly targeted with the testing? Absolutely. Um, it's a huge piece of this. A lot of, I think a key thing to understand about the history of this is that 
It comes out of the history of women's sports, which were created ostensibly to protect women. I'm going to do a lot of scare quotes here, but you can't see my fingers, but hopefully people know that I'm doing that. Protecting women in big scare quotes because um, women should not be expected to compete against men, right? That was sort of the point of establishing women's sports and men's sports. And so, so much of this comes out of that history of protecting certain kinds of women from other kinds of women, right? Protecting women from lots of things. And beyond sports, there is a really uh, brutal history of white women being protected from certain kinds of things, um, particularly men of color, um, in horrible ways. And that is all at play here. Interestingly, most of the early women who were flagged for sex testing because of sex testing were largely white, but that's purely because there just weren't very many women of color competing in the Olympics in the 1930s. But as soon as you start to have any real dominance of women of color on the track or, you know, in, in competitive realms, suddenly this, this becomes a big part of it. This is not to say that, uh, even in the early days, there wasn't a racial component. One of the first people to be flagged, um, by their competitors was in 1928 and it was a Japanese runner. So this has been here forever. And the other key thing to know is that for many years and in many situations, the policy isn't to just test everyone. The policy is that if there are concerns raised by someone, then there might be a test. And so you often see white competitors get beat by a woman of color and suddenly they have concerns. And so this is a huge piece of this. Um, and you wind up sort of in the situation now where many of the names that folks who have heard of this have probably heard before, um, Castor Semenya, Duti Chand, there were two Namibian runners this year at the Olympics who were banned, are, are all women of color. Um, and that's a, a huge piece of the story. And so when you think about the implications of this testing, how do you think it impacts the culture of sports as a whole, especially for young athletes? I think that for young athletes, you know, so many of the people I've talked to who have been either flagged from this testing or gone through this testing, they don't think about it when they're training, right? Because they're trying to be the best in their sport, right? They're there, they're training, they're doing their thing. The vast majority of people who are flagged, quote unquote, or, or sort of, you know, caught up in this have no idea that their body might be different in this very particular way. They just know that they're very fast. There's no real evidence that some of the differences that are being found in these women's bodies are the reason that they're very fast. Um, that's a huge point of contention. And thus far, um, there isn't good science there to, to sort of suggest that or to prove that. But so for many of these people, it's one of those things where you don't really think about it until it happens to you. Um, I do think that there's an overall sort of chilling effect or... I think that where you really see a lot of the impact is on trans athletes. Um, and, and there's really interesting similarities and differences between what we're talking about with a lot of the people who've been caught up in sex testing policies thus far who are not trans athletes, who are often intersex, but not always. They're not all non-binary. The vast majority of them are women. They're just women. They, you know, they're cis women. They're not, you know, trans. They are just running regular, they're just living their lives, regular lives. And, uh, they get caught up in this and sort of it happens to them. But what ends up really happening is that you have so much policing around what the very specific quote unquote scientific line between a man and a woman is that trans people actually end up being the ones who are impacted culturally by that conversation. So there's a really interesting kind of sticky place where these things connect to each other and interact. And there are cases in which sometimes trans-friendly policies in sports at the sort of state and local level will end up catching up intersex people, right? So 
it's really hard because again, you're trying to find a scientific answer and say, okay, well, if your testosterone is this level for this many months, then you get to be called a woman. And if it's not, you're not. And that can work for certain trans people. Um, and it totally doesn't work for a lot of cis people. So it's really complicated and I won't get too, too far, much further deep into that, like sort of thorny place, but I think culturally, all of this conversation about this test for who gets to be really considered a woman and what that means is really damaging and also just takes the focus off of the athletes for their athletic ability, right? I talked to a lot of these athletes and they don't want to be the poster child for sex verification testing, right? Like Castor Semenya is the fastest 400 runner. That's what she wants to be known for. She doesn't want to be the poster child for sex testing, you know? And so I think it's sort of this interesting thing where many of them don't even think about it before it happens to them. Like you said, these conversations are really personal for various reasons. And so I'm curious about the process for you in terms of finding athletes who will talk to you. What's that been like? Is there any resistance? And for those who do, what are those conversations like? Yeah, I think that it's totally fair that some athletes are like, I don't want to think about this. I don't want to be the person who is the face of sex testing. I don't want to be an activist, right? Many of these people are athletes and they want to be athletes and they want to be the best in the world at their sport. And they don't really want to deal with this other stuff. Um, and I totally understand that. I think for us, it's really important to, and one of the things I think I really want to convey with this series is that these are people who exist and have lives that aren't about sex testing. And that in fact, like this is such a minor piece of their lives in many ways that suddenly becomes this huge barrier that it's not just about the science. I think often um, when you read about this or when you, you know, see stuff about this, so much energy goes into explaining the science that you almost lose the people who are impacted by it. And so for us, one of the big things that we've been working really hard on is making sure that when we are talking to these folks, we're not just talking to them about the worst thing that's often ever happened to them or about, you know, these tests, these invasive tests they've had to go through. Um, we're also talking about like how they got into sport, like why they like sports, you know, like what it's like to win, you know, which is an incredible feeling that I don't have that often. I'm not very fast. So I think it's really important for us in our conversations with them and, and in the series to make sure that we're remembering that these are very complicated and well-rounded people um, and conveying them as such. And when we go in with that, when we start talking to people, that tends to kind of help us earn their trust or kind of get them to talk to us. Because yeah, we're not here to just run through the facts of what a chromosome is and kind of like, oh yeah, and there's this person over here who had this problem. Um, they really are people and characters that have, you know, you're going to learn a lot about them in, in the series and not just about this test. And so I think that that's a piece of it. And I totally respect the folks who are like, I don't want to talk about this. Um, I'm, I don't want to have to think about this. I don't want to be, you know, the face of this. Um, that's also totally fair. Um, we've been working with a couple of advocates and people who kind of go around and help these folks. And they've been really helpful in connecting us with people. So I think a lot of it is just kind of a slow, we have a lot of conversations before we turn on a recording device, right? Just kind of like explaining the project, explaining what I'm doing, making it clear that like, we're not just dipping in and out, you know, and trying to use them as an example of a science thing. So your project is being developed during a time when there are bills being passed that would bar transgender athletes from playing on sports teams. 
And so I'm curious about why this is becoming such a conversation now. What about this time is unique? Um, because like you said, there's a, there's a much deeper history here. But also, how do you hope that your series will kind of meet this moment? Yeah, it's been really... I don't even want to use the word interesting to watch the surge in um, anti-trans healthcare bills in the U.S. in the last several years um, as I've been kind of developing this project. It's been really disheartening. It's been really terrible. I think that so much of what we're seeing right now comes back to the thing I mentioned earlier, which is this idea of protecting women. Um, this is a huge talking point um, among anti-trans folks who believe that they are protecting people, protecting children, protecting women from some menace, from some kind of danger. And that is the history of this too. You know, we had in 1912, the first, oh no, we have to protect these women against men who might pretend to be women to compete in the Olympics, right? There's this idea of protection. Um, I think that that's a really potent idea to play with if you are um, particularly on the right, sort of like protecting a certain way of thinking, protecting a certain kind of conservative worldview, protecting a certain kind of family, right? There's a lot of that happening. And I think that sports are a really fertile ground for that conversation to go sideways um, in the way that these bills would like it to, because really many of the people who are raising these bills, they don't care about sports. It's not about sports, but because one of the main pillars of sports is this concept of fairness, which is sort of impossible to define. Um, it's a really that between protecting women and fairness, those are two really, really potent kind of argumentative tools, particularly for the conservative right, that things should just be fair. Everybody should be treated this like by, you know, some sort of supposed fair set of rules. But of course, who makes the rules? Fair for whom, right? There's so many questions you can ask. But I think that's part of why we're seeing this. We're seeing trans athletes become the locus of this conversation when like, many of the people raising these bills don't care about trans athletes at all, right? That's, they don't, this is sort of a, a smoke and mirrors for the bigger thing that they're trying to do, which is, you know, deny healthcare um, and deny rights to people. Um, and so I think that for me, for this project, I mean, I think one of the big things that I'm really hoping people get out of it is, I mean, yes, a baseline understanding of the fact that, you know, even sex is not binary. I think a lot of people still don't know that, um, that there are all kinds of um, things that happen in the body and genetically that make it impossible to call sex a binary in humans. Um, but also to kind of, I think, show the fool's errand that we've been at this for a hundred years and we have yet to A, find a single case of the thing that you're afraid of, the thing that you're trying to protect women against, but also that we've yet to figure out a, a way to even do this, to even test for this. Um, and if over a hundred years of science can't figure this out, like may maybe that says something, right? Maybe that means that this is again, a, a square peg in a round hole kind of situation, you know? So I'm hoping to kind of show that this is not new. This has been happening for a really long time. Um, there are hundreds, probably thousands of women who've been really terribly impacted by it. And it's not even doing the thing that you want it to be doing, which is protecting women from supposed, you know, men pretending to be women to compete. So I, I'm hoping that sort of showing that really long history and doing some of that explanation and showing these real people is going to kind of help people understand that this is a fool's errand and we should probably stop trying to do it. 
Yeah, I mean, podcasting is so so new in terms of a medium today, and it's just one that I'm less familiar with. So I'm curious about the reporting process for this podcast, but also the structure for the episodes. Like, how are you thinking about telling the story that you're trying to tell, especially in the way that you want so that it creates that impact? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's um, still something we're working out. Uh, and I'm working with two collaborators on this who I uh, love and trust deeply, um, who are great. And we've been talking about this a lot. Um, we've been having these little meetings and there's a lot of sticky notes involved. <laughs> a lot of like, you know, there was that meme where the guy is standing in front of the, um, all the string, you know, like kind of like conspiracy theory-ish. It's a little bit of how the process works. So we don't have exactly how the structure will lay out. But I think that for audio, you really need to use characters to help drive the story. And so for us right now, the process is kind of talking to all these people and figuring out who these characters, the main pillar characters are going to be to kind of bring you through it. Because for audio, you know, you can't, this is very silly and obvious to say, but you can't see anybody. You can't cover anything with B-roll. You can't have a little nice like data visualization. Um, You can't have a nice little animation of like the chromosome and how it works and pointing little arrows to things, things that would be very useful um, for this kind of thing. But what you do have is a really close connection to the characters that you're hearing and you can spend time with them and you can hear them grapple with things kind of in real time. Um, And so I think that we're really going to lean on that and sort of have all of the things that you learn about the history and about the science are all going to come through these characters. I mean, there are scientists who have been fighting sex testing their entire careers for 40, 50 years. Um, And so hearing them talk about all of the cases and all of this sort of testimony they've given and all the times they've shown up in court and all the times they fought the IOC and the IAAF and all these organizations, I think will kind of give you that same feeling and you can hear it in their voice when they talk about it. They're just tired of having to have this conversation over and over again, you know, and that's the kind of thing that you can really get in audio because you're just focusing on that person's voice. And we have a bit of archival that we'll be using and things like that. But so, so much of the work right now and the work that um, I've been thinking about for this is really character driven and really driven by the people that we're talking to, because I think that's really for a project like this in audio, kind of the only way to make it work. Yeah. I mean, you somewhat alluded to this and it's less about this project per se, but why sometimes for you is audio the only way to tell the story? I mean, you've worked on books before too to tell really complex stories. I know you just published one earlier this year. And so when you came upon this project, why did this seem like the only way to really tell the story beyond this project, but when you do decide to use audio as your vehicle? I think there are some very practical considerations. Unfortunately, there isn't archival of a lot of these athletes that we're talking about because people didn't record women doing things for a very long time. I think that there, um, so that there's one reason to kind of like really just go all in on audio because we can just spend the time with the characters. I think that for me, audio allows you to slow down a little bit um, because often people are willing to spend a little bit more time listening when you work in video, um, you have to keep everyone's attention, right? Because they're watching something, but their eye could go to a notification somewhere and they could zone out immediately. Obviously that can happen when someone's listening to audio, but I think people are willing to kind of sit with a person for a little bit longer and kind of really invest in not becoming friends with that person. Cause that's not really what's happening, but invest in understanding their story and kind of letting them tell it that I think um, is really kind of what we want to be able to 
to do. And because so much of this is history that doesn't have archival, like I mentioned, you know, hearing people talk about it, um, if you were to try to do it in a film, it would just be a lot of talking heads, um, which can get pretty boring. There's not a lot of scenes to see. Nothing is unfolding. You know, well, that's not true. There are things happening at the Olympics right now, which I'm very fascinated by, but largely the history is done. Right. Um, and so, getting to sort of sit with people and spend some time with them and hear them in your ears and really hear the way they talk about things, I think is, is for this project, particularly interesting. And in general, when I'm thinking about an audio project, you know, some of it is, does it have visuals? Does it not? Um, but also some of it is, do I want to be able to like spend a good amount of time with someone, you know, really like just with one person for a while, which is much harder to do in video or, um, you know, even in a book. And I think, for me, audio allows them to tell their story a little bit more directly. Um, and for this project in particular, it's really important for us to hear them tell it, right? Hear what it was like for them and really be able to hear them quite literally. Um, so if that's sort of what I think about when I think about audio versus other medium. Yeah, I mean, as, as an audio producer, I'm curious, do you have a podcast for you that kind of stands out as really an example for how you'd like to approach this project? Ooh, that's a really good question. It's funny. I'm I'm listening to a bunch of stuff right now that I'm loving, but that isn't like directly correlated to like it's like a very they're very different different shows in many ways. Um, or just what's your favorite podcast? One that you love and why? In terms of yeah, the format. Oh, my favorite podcast. I really love right now. I'm loving. There's a show called On Our Watch which is about, it's very dark. It's about police misconduct and it is incredibly good at just sort of showing you. It's a very good show, not tell kind of situation where you, they got access to a ton of tapes and recordings of police body cams and things like that. And it just does such a good job of showing how things happen and, and what sort of ends up happening when police do things incorrectly and then try to get away with it that it's just brutally effective. Um, and so I'm listening to that right now, which is why, what I was thinking of. It's very different from what this will be because it's so reliant on archival audio, which we're not going to have nearly as much of. Um, but it's incredibly good. And if anyone has not listened to it, I, I mean, it's definitely dark and very intense and you hear the police doing terrible things to people. Um, so with that warning, uh, it is also very, very well produced um, and I think does a really good job of what it's doing so I've, I've been really loving that show recently. You know, we held a program, a panel actually, maybe two years ago for the fellows, and we had an audio producer come in and he basically said before Serial, there were no careers really in this field. And today, you know, it's varied um, and there's just so many options right now. And But that podcast really just changed the industry. So I'm curious about your sense of the future of the industry, like where you see this going in terms of this medium as the way to tell stories? Are there new trends that you're seeing? And just how is it how is it trying to stay current and relevant uh, with the times? Yeah, it's so funny. A lot of audio people are, have like a bee in their bonnet about over crediting serial with, <laughs> with impact in the industry. And I think it's both weirdly at the same time over and under appreciated what serial did. You know, in the future of podcasting is tough. I, I came up as an, a completely independent podcaster. So um, I always did my own work independently, sort of not owned by a company so that I could own it all and, you know, have creative control and 
control what was going on with it. And I think that that's gotten really hard to do. Um, there, yes, there's a lot more money in it, uh, in terms of in the industry, there are a lot more large production companies that are putting a lot of money into shows. If you are a celebrity, it's a great time for podcasting. If you are a person who wants to do rigorous documentary work that costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time, it is not a great time in podcasting. Um, because yes, there's a lot of money, but it's not really being spent on that largely. And this is part of the reason, I mean, to be totally frank, we've been developing this show for two and a half years and everybody we talked to was like, yeah, it's really important. We recognize this, this is a really important topic, but to do this right, you're going to need to really do it. And we're really not investing in that kind of show right now. The return for your investment even on cereal is relatively low. Even if you get as popular as cereal, right? It costs a lot of money to make those shows. There's a reason that cereal doesn't come out every year, right? There's, there's a long gap between each, each series. So I think it's, you know, some days I am very hopeful about the future of audio because there is so much talent and there are so many opportunities, but other days I do feel sort of conflicted about it because yes, there's a lot of money, but a lot of it is going to famous comedians to have a show or actors or, um, you know, I see job postings all the time in the various sort of radio job posting areas. And it's, you know, asking one producer to do five people's jobs. And so I think it's tough to make rigorous independent work right now. Um, it's tough to have to answer to an ad market that often doesn't value things that take a lot of time um, and that might not make sense to have an ad break for socks in the middle of it. <laughs> um, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I think it's, it's a double-edged sword, you know, like anything, any, any industry has growing pains. And so some days I'm excited and some days I'm despondent, but I think that's just 2021's vibes. <laughs> Fair enough. As you embark on your project this year, where do you hope to be with it a year from now? Ooh, I hope a year from now we're coming into final production. I think that we um, have a lot of really amazing leads. We've had a lot of really amazing conversations. And so hopefully it probably won't be fully out in the world to listen to, but hopefully it'll be close, I think, in about a year, which would be very exciting. For sure. We're thrilled to support you this year and to see your project take shape. Thank you for your time today, Rose. Thank you so much. This is fun. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.